It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE Community Show and our show is now also available on iTunes and Stitcher. So please subscribe and rate us and that helps others find the show. My name is Kay Wenigal and today I'm joined by my co-host Natalie Bucknell. Hello Kay, hello listeners. Hi Nat. Today, we're going to explore whether or not geoengineering should be, or worse, needs to be used to counteract climate change. To help us understand geoengineering further, we've got Associate Professor Peter Christoph from Melbourne University, who teaches and researches climate policies and politics. Hi, Peter. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Kay. Peter, this is a really big topic. I don't know where to start or finish, but let's first start with what is geoengineering? Geoengineering is really a series, a number of different types of technologies that could be used to alter either the um, amount of solar radiation that hits the earth, and that's one way of controlling temperature, or technologies that could be used to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases already in the atmosphere. And again, that's another way of, of um, modifying temperature. So in 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 summary, they're all, it's a collection of technologies to try and limit um, global warming one way or another. So I understand there's two classes of geoengineering methods, SRM, which is, as you said, the solar radiation management, and CDR, which is the carbon dioxide reduction. Removal. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Um, let's go through what some of those applications look like. Well, they range from the sort of perfectly normal to the uh, science fiction and wacky. And I've got to say, this, this is an interesting discussion. Ten years ago, um, when people thought about geoengineering, it was really regarded as the, a fringe idea and sort of science fiction gone mad, uh, people in Because life. you've been lecturing all this time and you've seen the changes. In a very, very short period of time, it's gone from being an incredible narrative, something that people just laughed at as, as lunacy, to actually mainstream and a mainstream requirement for dealing with um, global warming. So the, the sort of technologies we're talking about are things that we would understand as perfectly reasonable, like replanting forests and a, a lot of reforestation to draw carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, a form of negative emissions, through right through to well um, that. Carbon capture and storage um, and BECS, uh, bio biochar. biochar and, and the use of algae and other um, uh, biological sources which could then be grown, burnt for energy and then the carbon co- carbon dioxide captured and pumped into aquifers underground. Uh, then you have other methods, ocean fertilisation, the use of iron filings to sort of create algal blooms which theoretically suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and then sink in the oceans. So those are the carbon dioxide removal methods most commonly thought of. And then you have solar radiation management 
things like putting um, sulphur dioxide particles in the air, using planes to spray the atmosphere. Is that to, at a high level? or a High level, stratospheric, yep. to, to increase um, cloud cover or to whiten the atmosphere and increase the reflectivity of the atmosphere, in, in other words, so that solar radiation bounces back out into space again, all the way through to putting mirrors in space to actually sort of shadow the Earth and, and reflect rays back out in space again, which is really at the, the outer fringes, if you like, of the sort of science fiction imagination of how we might do this stuff. And the, the mirrors, I mean, they're huge. I, I, I've read about it and, like, it's many thousands of kilometres Well, I keep on hoping. I, I've got all these old CDs which I keep on wanting to offload and I keep on thinking <laughs> that, you know, sort of David Bowie, sort of Major Tom, I, you know, multiple copies of Major Tom floating around in space would be the ideal way of doing it. <laughs> but actually, yes, the idea would be to park some very large mirrors out in space and um, manipulate those. So that idea of putting particles into the stratosphere, where has that arisen from? Um that's risen from an understanding that we already do that in, in, an, in a sense. There, there are two ongoing processes of, of, if you like, geoengineering underway at the moment. The first is the sort of dirty industrialisation that we've been engaging in over the last 100 plus years and which is now very well and truly underway in countries like China. So with dirty, you know, dirty industrialisation, um, particulates are simply pumped up into the atmosphere. We've also seen it occur accidentally when you've had volcanoes erupt and they pump very large quantities of particulates and particularly sulphur dioxide into the stratosphere. And there have been historical periods where we've seen very, very serious changes in global temperature um, occurring. For a sustained period. Uh, for a sustained period, with a result, with resulting sort of losses in harvests and famines and so on, and of course some very good outcomes like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which was written in the very cold winter of eighteen sixteen. <laughs> um, I think it's an extreme way of getting a very good book. Yeah. Um, and then of course the contrails of planes, which also produce those sorts of mm. reflective things, and that that in fact has been the way in which people now think that this this can be done. You can do it by pumping. Uh, seawater into the atmosphere, or you can do it by using planes. And it's in fact the sort of the use of planes which people most often refer to as the cheap technology to do precisely this sort of um, increase in uh, atmospheric reflectivity. So how often would it need to be done to be effective? Well, in effect, it would have to be done constantly. Right. Have, if, if you're using planes or ships, you'd be pumping this stuff into the atmosphere constantly. And that there is, there's pluses and minuses with all of this, diabolical pluses and minuses. The pluses are that this is a relatively simple idea and a relatively simple technology, and it can be done relatively quickly and relatively cheaply. By could, could it actually be done now? It could be done now. Really? It could, well, it sort of is being done now. That's the plus, if you think of that as a plus, and we can talk about the, you know, all the other issues in a moment. But the minus is, of course, that the minute you stop doing it, then all of these particulates precipitate out of the atmosphere and the global warming that you have been protecting yourself against because you were already, you're basically trying to mask the effects of existing gases in the atmosphere, all of that then leaps back into action again. So I'll give you an example of, of the diab diabolical problem that we face at the moment. We do really want the Chinese to be able to um, modernise their industry because it's pumping out a lot of nasty particulates and, you know, air pollution in, in Beijing and places and in other industrial cities around China is terrible. If they go down that path, and they will, then there'll be a diminish, diminution of the number of, of, of the quantity of particulates in the atmosphere. So we are already engaging, we are already engaging in a form of geoengineering and a form of global dimming. 
and we're already masking something in the vicinity of about 0.4 degrees of global warming as a result. So if we're at 1.1 now, we're actually probably at 1.5 and reality. it's only pollution that's saving and us. It's at only the pollution that's saving us. Oh, and I heard it was even more than that. So it'd be up to a degree difference. Yeah, again, it's there's it's, probably variations in there the are variations, but the figures I think are sort of closer to point four, point five. Mm-hmm. Okay. So of the methods you've described to us, which do you think would be the most feasible? Well, they're if all. You can ask <laughs> the question is, you know, how, how do you want to judge feasibility? It depends who wants to do it, how they want to do it, and where they want to do it. Um, some of the technologies are, are poorly developed. Carbon capture and storage is extraordinarily expensive, and would take a long time to we, put in we place. We should let our federal government know that. Well, <laughs> oh, the taxpayers. There, it is a technology which is so expensive that it certainly can't be done as part of the normal process of producing carbon. Uh, fossil fuels, um, it expense doesn't. Well, you know, expense is one of those. The, the economics of these things is very strange. If you're really trying to reduce temperature by any means whatsoever, then you simply throw money at the problem, and therefore it can become feasible. But it's a technologically very difficult thing to do. It takes a lot of time to simply build the pipes and get the engineers trained and all of that. So that's at the expensive end. There are other technologies like artificial trees, which I didn't mention. Um, artificial trees? Artificial trees, technologies which effectively simply suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Again, very expensive, but potentially perhaps can be scaled up over time. So compared to a normal tree, how effective are they? Apparently, very. Ten times more effective than... Well, I don't... Look, I don't know. I don't know what the the relativities are, but they do do work. But, you know... So you'd need much less area to achieve the same effect as you would with a normal forest. Again, I don't know what the answer to that would be. I think you'd certainly need some area. But the, the problem with these things is that a lot of these experiments, a lot of these technologies, in fact, only exist in... Um, either on on the plans but never actually realised or in micro form they've never been done to scale and here's one of the other problems with geoengineering we only have one chance of doing the experiment it is at scale global scale or very large regional scale and so we don't we won't quite know what the consequences are of going down some of these paths until we've actually tried them and that in itself is one of the biggest problems of geoengineering. We don't know what the consequences will be. Much of the modelling that has been done is still pretty crude. And and would countries just take that on of their own accord or does it have to be a global effort? Well, uh, for it to work at global scale, it's going to have to be done at scale. And if if we're talking about... um, atmospheric modification, solar radiation management. A lot of that can probably be done over oceans, but nevertheless, that will still have implications for countries. So what you're, what you're, I think, rightly asking is, well, who's going to do this and how do you authorise it? And one of the biggest problems at this stage with global with, with geoengineering is that we don't really have any idea how we're going to govern this stuff. There are treaties in place um, which do some of the work for us, like the London Dumping Convention limits what you can dump into the oceans. There's a number of conventions which limit what you can stick up into the atmosphere. But they're, they're sort of bricolage conventions, if you like, for governing this. This is a problem that sort of sits in the interstices, in the gaps between conventions. And if, it's, if you have a problem which is going to be affecting countries... There's a question as to, firstly, who's going to do it? And secondly, how is it going to be governed? Is it going to be governed by people or countries mobilising these treaties or what? 
and we this is a big problem because if there are things that go wrong there's also the issue of legal liability and no one quite knows how this will be done and who will be responsible including who will be legally or otherwise responsible for things that may not quite go to plan and I guess the impacts could also be felt differently in different areas like our our global climate's not one rule fits all there's a lot of variation across location so well, well, there's the worry that if you can use some of the, the sort of global dimming technologies to good effect, and they will probably work, but they may have significant changes, for example, cause significant changes to rainfall patterns. So you may affect the, you know, one of the big concerns is affecting the monsoon patterns in the Northern Hemisphere, which is then also one of the reasons why people are saying, well, if you're going to experiment or try these out, let's try them out in the Southern Hemisphere, because there are fewer people living here. Oh, there's, you know, Australians and New Zealanders, but we don't much they care about notice. them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you, you're right. Uh, these big scaled technologies have implications which will be variable. They, they will probably, if they work, reduce global temperatures or keep temperatures down. But what they then do to rainfall patterns, what they do to crops, all those sorts of things, very, very hard to predict at this stage. The other thing that I really struggle with is the fact that we can't even address the problem that we've got to at the moment, we, we worldwide, we're not really taking the action that's required and therefore we're talking about global engineering to solve the fact that we can't do this in the first place and yet we need the same sort of um, structures in place um, to do geoengineering. You know, we've, it's got to be a global effort. We've got to have global rules and we've got to have um, organisations doing this. It's not that different, is it? No, it's not. And there's also another part to the problem which is you know, commonly known as the moral hazard problem, mm. which is if we actually can use these technologies, uh, then there will be people, there will be companies, there will be countries which go, well, that's great. Now we can just continue to use fossil fuels or use a diminished but nevertheless still significant quantity of fossil fuels to keep the economies as we've got them at the moment going on into the future. So there's a real, real anxiety amongst the scientists and others who've been looking at geoengineering, that if we actually start going down this path, it'll actually slow mitigation um, or, in fact, even halt mitigation in certain areas. And I think that's a real concern. So would they argue that we shouldn't even be having this discussion? Well, that was the argument about 10 years ago. And there are still some people who will say, look, we should just don't go here. Don't even talk about it. The problem is that if we're going to if we're serious about holding warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees, I don't actually think we can hold it to 1.5 at this stage, we are already locked into using some suite of these technologies to do that. And if you look carefully at the heart of the Paris Agreement when it talks about negative emissions um, and zero net emissions, if you look at the modelling that underpins that, the modelling is built around the use of large-scale reforestation to actually achieve those negative emissions or to draw down emissions to enable net zero emissions to occur. So we've gone past the point, I think, very clearly, the point of saying we can't do or won't do this stuff. I think the question now is what version of this are we going to use and how are we going to control it? So geoengineering is built into those models which are not even a good case looking forward, but there's, it's still an essential part of achieving that not-so-bad case. They're built into the models, but the models, and, and again, I'm, I'm 
thinking about work that a former student of mine and our colleague, Kate Dooley, has done on this. If you look carefully at the models, the models themselves assume massive reforestation. That's the good news. But the bad news is they assume such levels of such areas of reforestation that there probably will be implicate would be implications for both biodiversity and also for agricultural output. So assuming that we don't make our agriculture a lot more efficient, that we don't sort of transform our food systems and stop losing food, you know, billions of tonnes of food each year, um, the consequence of using reforestation, which I think is the best of the technologies, um, benign, most benign of those technologies, to deal with the problem would be losses of biodiversity as we modify um, existing un relatively untouched uh, forests and, and, bi and ecosystems and use agricultural land converted into sort of plantations for carbon drawdown, problems then really do emerge for food, food security uh, in parts of the planet. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Peter Christoph, Professor at Melbourne University, and we're discussing geoengineering. Peter, talking about planting more trees, we're, we still haven't got our head around pulling down all the trees that we possibly can get our hands on. How do we change that mindset? Um, I, I think the, the, the phrase stop it now does come to mind. The, the, the losses that we are incurring as a result of forestry globally um, in terms of carbon release and so on are absolutely unconscionable given the things, that we, you know, the things that we're now talking about in terms of carbon drawdown and the use of that sort of landscape. When you log, down, when you log trees which have got hundreds of tonnes of carbon already locked up in them, and, and replace them with plantations, which, of course, in one sense may be sustainable in a very limited sense in terms of ecosystems, it still takes a very long time for the regrowth to um, accumulate carbon in the ways in which the trees that we've cut down uh, have done. So if those trees are then taken away and burnt, if they degrade, then we're releasing the carbon. It is, it is a circular sort of carbon economy that we've got there, but it's one that over time will work, but at the moment we don't have that time. We simply have to draw down as much carbon as we possibly can. So forestry, large-scale forestry um, of the sort that we're engaging in globally at the moment is a very bad idea. And so the afforestation strategies, what sort of time frame would they take to have any impact? Well, they take some time, and as, you know, as we've just lived through this horror summer in Australia, we also know that forestry and, and, and relying on... on Timber growth, in particular, is is uh, a perilous activity. So we need to make sure that you know we have the the time frame would be hundred or hundreds of years, and in the interim, we probably do need to use some other tech, other geoengineering technologies to limit warming at the same time. So that's why I said earlier on that we need a suite of technologies, possibly using some global tim dimming technologies to keep temperatures down to allow us to still have roughly the sort of climate that we have at the moment to enable forests to grow. There are also other forms of drawdown, you know, kelp forests, um, the use of, of algae. And, and so we're not necessarily going to be purely reliant on forests per se, but they are large-scale and relatively easily managed resources, if you want to talk about them in those terms. But they take some time to put into place. Kelp, still experimental. Algal drawdown, still experimental, not done to scale. Yes, some of those things like algal drawdown, they can have unintended consequences as well, can't they? Because there's some arguments or some models that suggest that nitrous oxide, nitrous oxide's produced as a result of that in the longer term fallout of the algal bloom would offset any 
greenhouse gas drawdown in terms of capturing the CO2? In terms of... So you're referring to the use of um, ocean, ocean-based yes. methods, and I, I personally find them quite problematic, again, because I think that the experiments that have been done have been relatively ineffectual, firstly, so it looks like the amount of effort required to produce an ocean and an algal bloom is... It's not the most efficient way of going about doing what we're trying to do. But secondly, there's a lot of a lot of problems associated with mucking around with mar- complex marine ecosystems, and I don't think a lot of that has been thought through very carefully at all. So, what are the other algal options? Well, literally growing al- algae in vats and then sort of burning them and, u- and using carbon capture and storage to right. sort of sequester the carbon. But again, that's expensive, relatively speaking. In 2007, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, concluded that geoengineering proposals are largely speculative and unproven, and with the risk of the unknown side effects, with a lot of risk of unknown side effects, you're telling us that there are a lot of issues that we haven't really thought through. Do you know if the IPCC has changed their stance at all? I think that by the time we get to the next IPCC report, there will probably be a shift in, in opinion on this. Again, the IPCC, uh, for listeners who aren't all that aware of its machinations, it's, it's, it's basically a committee, it's a process which summarises reputable, peer-reviewed, published science. And by the time the next report comes out, there has been quite a bit more writing on geoengineering. The next report will summarise that, and I think the shift will be towards a much clearer understanding of the implications of the different technologies, firstly, and secondly, a much clearer statement about the levels of necessity and issues of governance that, that this is going to be, be uh, this is going to require. So I think watch this space. That that's one part of the answer. The other part of the answer is that there's been there is there is currently work underway to revise the the climate modelling that underpins the IPCC's reports, and I've been it's been suggested to me that the modelling that is being done at the moment um, indicates that even with the amount of carbon dioxide that we've got in the air at the moment. We've talked about current trajectories leading to warming of four degrees by the end of this century. Actually, the revised models show a much higher degree of warming. So we're going to be in a very different space and talking about all of these things, I think, in a year or two. It seems to be the case in not just with the temperature increase, does it? Also with the tipping points happening much more rapidly than people were scientists were predicting. Look, everything is, seems to be speeding up. Everything is speeding up. Um, the... In, we always knew that there were going to be extreme and intense events and all of a sudden the future is upon us and Australia's almost this litmus for, you know, we are, I don't know how we can use the phrase canary in a coal mine, but we literally are the canary in the coal mine or the parakeet in the coal mine at the moment. And so there's that. The, we just had never been able to imagine what we confront now as a reality. And then in terms of tipping points, yeah, they are they appear to be occurring much sooner particularly in terms of polar tipping points where the temperatures that we're now experiencing uh, in the North Pole and the South Pole are so high as to really propel changes in terms of sea ice loss on the one hand and then the loss of sea ice and also the the mobilisation of glaciers in Antarctica on the other hand. So sea level rise, for example, is faster than we're expecting. Yeah, problem. Big problem. And um, what concerns me is that we haven't even started grappling with the problem as it stands today, and now we're introducing geoengineering 
because we're getting to the point where we've got no other solutions. So that just jumps in and takes over as the as the solution. Look, I think possibly many of many of uh, us here and our listeners were at the climate emergency summit. I think that we're and, and which was a very interesting moment, I think, in Australian climate history, in a sense. I think that we're all now starting to move towards some version of a, an emergency narrative and recognising that all of these things are coming home much faster than we possibly imagined. And I think our, our thinking about how we're going to respond is going to become a lot sharper, not just in Australia, but also globally as a result. So, yeah, at the moment, emissions are still increasing. Um, and there's the, the Paris Agreement has not had any substantial effect at this stage on um, changing countries' trajectories. I'm not, not one given a great optimism, but I do think that there's going to be a real shift in the next few years because of what we're seeing now. Given that you've just been describing how little research we've done into all these different methods and techniques and the amount of time it takes to actually understand with the implications of any of these decisions and all the other solutions that we have available to us today, I understand that a climate emergency might, once people really get their head around it, might um, help people take action and, and make decisions. But will they make the, in, an informed decision? Well, if we're thinking about geoengineering, this is, again, one of the problems that we've got, which is, firstly, there's not a widespread public understanding as to what these technologies are, how they might be used, what level of necessity is. Most people find the whole idea of geoengineering absolutely abhorrent. They don't want to go there. Um, if what I was suggesting is right, in other words, we don't have any choice, then that, that's a narrative that we're going, to, we're going to have to work on. We're going to have to actually convince people that this is worth doing. In fact, there, there's going to have to be an appetite to do it, including an appetite for the risks that, that might entail. Then there's the question as to who makes the choices, as to which technologies are used. And one version would be that you sort of hand it over to a bunch of experts and technocrats, uh, that it's hardly a democratic process at all, or indeed you find yourself in a situation where you find individual countries or individual private corporations going feral and simply doing this stuff. And th that is a problem with some elements of geoengineering because the technologies themselves are relatively cheap. Some of them are relatively cheap, relatively easy to do, and can be deployed relatively quickly. So the issue of choice, the issue of democratic choice, is a profound one, I think, when we get into this space. And the IPCC doesn't appear to, to have the power to... to make those decisions well the ipcc is an advisory body it, it, yeah. it it's not a it, it doesn't actually make decisions it, it advises on science and to some extent on policy to governments and to the unfccc so the, the the massing of countries there i'm i think that this is going to be a much sharper debate in the next few years than it has been so far We've um, just about run out of time peter and we've just started talking about this it feels like where can people find out more about it there's not. There are some very interesting things written about this. Ironically, some of the best bits of accessible literature were written about ten years ago when it first came into sight as a problem. And, and not surprisingly, in a sense, given the Brits believe they invented science and therefore they have a hold on all of this, some of the best writing actually came out of the Royal Society. 
um, and I think it's the Royal Society of Engineers in, in the United Kingdom. If you simply Google and look for geoengineering and have a look at the Royal, the Society's, Royal, Society Re- Royal Society's report in 2009, engineers. that's the best, um, I think, accessible explanation as to what the, the, the spectrum of issues are and also what the spectrum of technologies are. There are other things, but that would be a great place to start. Mm. And that, that's the report you sent through to me, yeah. which is very comprehensive yeah. and, and it's a wonderful read, actually. So thank you very much. Thank Pleasure. you very much for your time. Thank you. We've been talking to Peter Christoph from the University of Melbourne about geoengineering. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe to help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.